Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is Emma Larking. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Australian National University and I love the program Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio. 8.55 on the AM dial. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. On the program today, I'm going to be speaking with Assistant Professor Candice Delmas about civil disobedience. This is part one of a two-part interview. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Beth. It's great to be with you. Could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Sure. So I'm French. I was born uh, in Nice, and I studied philosophy in high school and then throughout my undergraduate studies in in Paris. I moved to the U.S. for graduate school. I got a master's at Georgia State University in Atlanta, and then my Ph.D. in philosophy from Boston University in Boston, My first job was in South Carolina at Clemson, and I am now back in Boston where I teach philosophy and political theory at Northeastern University. I was also a Dworkin Belden Fellow at uh, NYU at the law school in 2016 and 2017. And I work in social, political, legal philosophy. I I, I've published uh, mostly on uh, principled uh, disobedience, so civil and uncivil, and also on authority, legitimacy, and bioethics. And I have a book coming out next month with Oxford University Press. It's entitled a Duty to Resist When Disobedience Should Be Uncivil. And it kind of brings together some of my previous research together in a book, Yes, look, you just mentioned about civil and uncivil disobedience. Well, what's the difference between the two? Okay, so the two fall in the broad category of principal disobedience, which involves law-breaking that is motivated by moral or political principles. And 
so most of the philosophical attention has been devoted to civil disobedience, and I think that that's just a small category of these acts, protest, resistance, that involve law-breaking. So I... Okay, let's start with the standard uh, liberal account, conceptual account of uh, civil disobedience, which was given by John Rawls in his Theory of Justice, in fact, a little bit earlier, too, at the end of the 1960s, as the United States and the world were shaken with mass protests, anti-war, civil rights, decolonization movements. And the definition that John Rawls gave was quite narrow. So it was a conscientious, open, political breach of law designed to address the majority, to persuade it to change a law or policy because it didn't abide by the widely endorsed principles of justice. And it's nonviolent, non-coercive also on his view. And it's a kind of respectful breach of law undertaken within the limits of fidelity to law insofar as the agent who uh, civilly disobeys accepts, even in some way seeks out the legal sanctions of the state for her law-breaking. So there was this uh, narrow definition. The, the conditions for the justification of civil disobedience were also uh, really narrow. And there's a bit of a disconnect between what we refer to when we talk about civil disobedience and what the philosophy has found it to be. And yet, that disconnect has some, somehow narrowed such that it remains the case, I believe, today in public debates uh, that civil disobedience is quite narrowly understood. And so what I think remains the marks of civility for principal disobedience, so for what it would be for an act of principal disobedience to be a, an act of civil disobedience. So the, the four marks of civility are first the publicity, so the act is done openly without hiding one's identity. Uh, there, there can, of course, be very many meanings of publicity, very meaning, very many dimensions of publicity, right? So it could be that it is done in an open public space, such as a street or a public park, without hiding one's identity, and done in a kind of fashion that is visible to all and kind of visibly intended to be for everyone to see. Okay, so something like that. That's the first mark of civility. The second is nonviolence. This is kind of famously difficult to define. We may say that something is nonviolent when it does not deliberately or recklessly inflict any harm on anyone or damage any property. So there, there are some understandings of uh, nonviolence that uh, moralize it and make it a matter of commitment to everyone's rights and dignity, and they are, I believe, a little bit less helpful, actually, to uh, 
discriminate between violent and non-violent acts, but of course it's uh, at the limit between the two, often difficult to, to uh, draw the line. Okay, the third mark of civility, I think, is non-evasion, which is the uh, notion that the agent ought to accept, uh, is going to accept punishment, and that also can be understood in a variety of ways, but so it's basically this so the, the agent accepts the legal sanctions on some very, very demanding accounts. It could be that the agent seeks out arrest and punishment. Also, on some accounts, it excludes pleading anything but guilty to the charges brought against the civil disobedience when facing a trial. On some other more uh, lax, if you will, accounts, it's just going to be about not evading the, the legal sanctions. The fourth mark of civility, I think, is more implicit, more implied in the accounts, and it's something like decorum, so the idea that uh, civil disobedience ought to behave uh, respectfully without offending or insulting anyone. And so... I th- I kind of keep these marks of civility as what broadly defines civil disobedience. I also agree with many theorists that uh, civil disobedience is communicative. It addresses a particular audience and seeks to reform a law or an institution or a policy. But I think that within the category of principal disobedience, there are all these things that are not, all these activities that are not civil disobedience. And so those are um, acts of uh, so politically motivated law-breaking that do not primarily aim to communicate to a relevantly placed audience. So things like direct action that just try to achieve something, say, uh, you know, rescue animals from a lab, assist irregular migrants to cross border, so things of that nature. And so uncivil disobedience can also be communicative, but it doesn't have to. And so acts that violate uh, one or more of the basic norms of civility, on my view, are uncivil. So because they are covert, so not done publicly, evasive, so the agent tries to avoid getting caught or uh, being subject to punishment. They involve some violence, such as sabotage or destruction of property, as happens in the course of riots. And they are disrespectful or offensive. Take, for instance, Pussy Riot's punk prayer in Moscow in the Cathedral of Christ the Savior, something deeply offensive to churchgoers and insulting to the to Putin or something like that. So there are all this kind of constellation of acts that do not form a neat category on their own. So I don't think uncivil disobedience is a thing that can be studied as a whole. I think it should be sorted out in depending on the dimensions that it displays and studied kind of in parallel and with in parallel from and with different tools than civil disobedience. So that's the, the, the short story on the conceptual map, if you will. What was it that inspired your interest in civil disobedience? Well, 
Uh, yeah, I've always been fascinated by social movements and popular uprisings. I, I grew up at the end of the Cold War and witnessed as a child the fall of the Berlin Wall and uh, the rise of independence and democratic movements throughout the Soviet Union, and that led to the collapse of the USSR. And these are the kinds of things that, that really struck me even when I was a, a, a child. And, I mean, I might say a bit stereotypically that protest uh, is in France's DNA. So, you know, we talk and we learn about the French Revolution, the Commune, and uh, May 1968. And um, going to demonstrations is a bit of a rite of passage for French youth. So um, this, this had already, always been kind of present in my life. And, you know, strikes regularly paralyze the country. And I, I would say that this, this kind of background made me especially receptive to the U.S. tradition of uh, principal disobedience, which I discovered in graduate school thanks to my advisor, David Lyons. And I was really interested by all of it, from the boycotts and civil disobedience campaigns organized by the civil rights movement to the forceful, violent, provocative, covert actions of radical groups from, you know, feminists and radical Marxist and black nationalists and so on. This, this has just always been of interest to me. And I, so I, I always took this to be of great, great political significance. And I was really surprised when I saw in philosophy the kind of marginal place that civil dis disobedience occupied in political philosophy. So when it comes to examining citizens' obligations as citizens, so what we call political obligation, all everyone talks about is the moral duty to obey the law, right? So political obligation is understood as just the moral duty to obey the law, this obligation that arises from a state's legitimacy and that uh, binds citizens within the state to obey all laws just because they are the laws and they are authoritative. And the question, so this is what matters, what grounds political obligation, understood as the moral duty to obey the law. This is a really important question in political philosophy and philosophy of law. And the study of civil disobedience comes as a kind of subcategory, non-ideal excursion from that field of political obligation. And so the question is, given that we morally ought to obey the law, how can we justify civil disobedience, right? So disobeying the law that we have a moral duty to obey to. That is the way that the question has been framed for a long time. Uh, I should say for there, there are a few exceptions, like Michael Walzer, uh, David Lyons, whom I just mentioned, Kimberly Brownlee, and Tommy Shelby kind of do something uh, different there. But for the most part, that's the, the way the field uh, looked, at least when I started studying civil disobedience. There's the assumption that uh, all citizens have a moral duty to obey the law within near just states, like ours, on many accounts. And then how do you make room for permitting some deviations from the, from 
the assumption of constant compliance. And so, you know, answers to those questions involve, well, the anomalous injustice or the pervasive injustice that the, the civil disobedience protests or some sorts of caveats uh, applied to the moral duty to obey the law. But that's basically the framing. And I thought this didn't jab well with the self-understanding of practitioners and their writings and speeches as great practitioners like Henry David Thoreau, Mondas Gandhi, and Martin Luther King Jr., and many of, of course, of all the current protesters from Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter activists to sanctuary workers and so on, tell us that resisting injustice and sometimes disobeying unjust law is a matter of duty and not something that we can be excused because we had a good reason to do. Yes, yes, I definitely agree with that, 100%. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking with Assistant Professor Candice Delmas about civil disobedience. Could you explain about the moral and political importance of civil disobedience? Uh, Sure, yeah. So civil disobedience has historically helped to make societies more inclusive and more just, and that's something that a lot of people recognize. So regardless of their views on the moral duty to obey the law, on whether to punish civil disobedience and so on, that's pretty much accepted now, especially in the U.S., but in many societies across the world. So that's recognized that it's good, that some of the uh, great civil disobedience were heroes and that we owe them some great strikes uh, towards justice and so on. Okay, so what's problematic about it? It appears problematic as a as a form as a as a as a form of political action because it involves breaking the law, and as I just mentioned, so from the philosophical perspective, there's the assumption that we have a moral duty to obey the law. That could be one reason why civil disobedience is presumptively unjustified, but there are others too, regardless of your uh, philosophical commitment to uh, political obligation. It's just that uh, that's important because, sorry to step back a little bit, the the assumption of the moral duty to obey the law is supposed to apply just to legitimate societies, right? So you might think that in a society that is less than legitimate and less less than nearly just, and that doesn't successfully generate a moral duty to obey the law, then there is no problem with breaking the law, at least insofar as you're not violating your moral duty to obey the law when you do so. Okay. But there are other reasons that can arise even in less than nearly just societies. And one is that uh, civil disobedience, like in criminal disobedience, destabilizes society, right? So it might invite more disobedience and therefore put us on a slippery slope toward anarchy. That, that sounds a little bit 
basic, but it, a lot of, I mean, a lot of, a lot of arguments from officials, from judges, from any sort of conservative champions, and since Plato's Crito make that argument forcefully, right? So it is dangerous. It invites anarchy. It, it risks descent of the state into uh, lawlessness and chaos. So that's a problem. And of course, I mean, if people disobey the law whenever they find it unjust, you can see how you're, you know, flirting with a, a sort of state of na- nature condition, and that's really problematic. Another is that it seems to flout democratic ideals, right? So if you have a society in which the decisions are made democratically by the people, then someone who breaks the law, even civilly, is someone who says, I'm better, I know better than uh, the rest of you what justice requires, right? So refusing to obey the outcomes of democratic processes is then anti-democratic, and that's problematic. So there are these two tensions, these tensions uh, within civil disobedience with its clear usefulness. I should also add that a lot of theorists, in fact, see in civil disobedience a spirit of democratic sovereignty. Hannah Rand did. Uh, she did see that in the student anti-war civil rights activism of the 60s in the U.S., as well as in the revolution, uh, many of the revolutions of the time, the spirit that animated voluntary associations, and uh, currently radical democratic theorists like Robin Salikatev also insist that Civil disobedience is kind of a true expression of democratic sovereignty. Some liberals uh, endorse that view as well. But you, you see the tension uh, be, within democracy and when it comes to justice and stability. So civil disobedience is kind of a double-edged sword. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you, Beth. It was a pleasure talking with you. And I've been speaking to Assistant Professor Candice Delmas about civil disobedience. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought. 